This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 71 Recorded on Monday, November 20th, 2017, I'm your host, Tim Cry from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with no co-host today. I've been left hanging by myself, but I'm here with a special guest, Nancy Goodman. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks for being here. So we wanted to talk today about advocacy and all the great work you've done, especially um, with Congress and passing really cool laws to help us get better treatments for children. But let's start back at the beginning, your story. Tell us about your experience with your son. Sure. Thanks, Tim. So my experience starts 10 years ago, really, when my son Jacob um, was diagnosed with highly metastatic medulloblastoma. Um, He was eight and a half years old. He was normal until diagnosis, no symptoms except for dizziness and nausea. He had emergency surgery for hydrocephalus. He emerged, you know, with significant neurological compromises, which were never um, truly resolved. And he had, you know, a really lousy experience with treatment for two years, and then he died. You know, many of us who are listening know the story of a child who's sick and who's dying. Um, but the part that really struck me was that the drugs that were provided to Jacob in the protocol were 40 years old. And um, I thought, this is just crazy. You know, why can it be that all of these brilliant pediatric oncologists can't get access to innovative drugs? We read the newspaper every day. We read about new and exciting advances in cancer research. So why isn't it showing up in my child's protocol? So Jacob died on a Sunday night. And Monday morning, I put my laptop on the kitchen table. I founded Kids Versus Cancer, and the question that compels me is how can we bring private industry to focus on the question of developing new drugs for kids with cancer? That was pretty insightful for you to be able to, and and robustly, emotionally, uh, I I can imagine challenging, but uh, to turn around the next day and really try to make something out of this whole tragedy. It, It was part, Tim, it was part of trying to continue to cure Jacob. You know, one thing I've noticed, um, it's incredible meeting parents of terminally ill kids because they, they just do incredible things. Um, and I developed a group of friends, and we, we did amazing stuff. We um, modified Jacob's protocol three times. It was accepted by the hospital IRB, and wow. I ended up putting together my own um, unofficial scientific advisory board with young researchers, including Mariam Falati and Oren Becker and Xiaonan Li, and I would just scour abstracts, and I would identify novel ideas, and I would call them and send them to them and ask them what they thought, and if they seemed sufficiently interesting, then we'd have a conference call with Sharon Gardner, Jacob's oncologist, and we tried a whole bunch of stuff. Unfortunately, it didn't work, but I also learned that you know physicians are tasked with incredibly complex medical problems, and they don't have a staff. It's just crazy. You know, I'm a lawyer, and when I worked at a law firm, you know, a client would come in with a complex legal problem, and, you know, my partner would have 15 associates and two junior partners, you know, spending 24 hours a day for weeks trying to understand how to approach this client's problem. 
and you know physicians just don't have that luxury which is crazy and it's gotten worse since then in terms yeah. of the time available for us to do things like that or be innovative or creative or think about and network uh, what we need to do with it, all the pressures. It really is a problem. So the first thing I did when Jacob died, um, through my experience of learning how to shift Jacob's protocol, I, I met Xiaonan and Michael Taylor and um, several other really compelling researchers. So as, as Jacob was in his end stage of cancer, I called them and I said, you know, would you like their tumor tissue? And so um, I then went and I met the pediatric pathologist at NYU, David Zagzag, this incredibly sweet guy. And I don't think he had ever met a parent of a terminally ill kid before. And he, he tells me now that it was just a very hard conversation for him and mm -hmm. a very difficult meeting. Um, but for me, it's like part of still curing Jacob, even though I knew he was going to die. And so we worked out that Jacob would be, um, his tumor would be resected by David. And we picked five researchers to send the tissue to. And David did it, and which was really kind of him. So you were planning this proactively. Yes, this was my idea. Wow. With Sharon Gardner, we, we, we made a list of five. Um, Sharon put Michael Taylor on the list, actually. I put Xiaonan Lee on the list, and we had three other folks. And you know, everyone did what they could with the tissue, but unbelievably, you know, Michael Taylor got a Nature article out of it mm -hmm. where he, he identified that the genomic um, makeup of... METs and primary tissue is different, which seems self-evident, but nobody had ever done it before, right? Because how do you do it? And right. so that was that was really shocking to me. And then Xiaonan Li built the first ever autopsy mouse model of any brain cancer, pediatric or adult, off of my son's tissue, and he figured out how to do it. You would have thought it wouldn't have taken because the tissue wouldn't have been viable. It, it you know, the tissue, um, he didn't get the tissue for 36 hours after death, and it took him months to do, but he figured out how to do it. And, you know, now he has dozens of autopsy mouse models, and other researchers do as well. And so this really convinced me that, you know, it's very, very important to donate autopsy tissue because... There's all sorts of um, ways science can advance when parents do this. So I posted a letter online. There were, um, it was a Yahoo groups, about my experience to families and, and asking other families, you know, to take the same step I did and explaining why. And I received a tsunami of responses, just, you know, hundreds of responses from family members. Every single one was positive. And it was everything from, you know, my child died and I wish I had that opportunity to do it to, you know, my child is not terminal, but, you know, I'm so grateful you're doing this. And of course, I would take the same step. And then many people said, you know, my kid's terminal and how do I do it? And so suddenly I had my first project. And so we built an autopsy tissue donation program and, and the goal really was to help families donate tissue and get physicians more comfortable with talking about it. Understandably, it's a very difficult topic for physicians, but the fact is every family of a kid with terminal cancer wants, wants the choice, you know? Sure. And so for physicians, what we found is that it was sometimes easier for them to say, look, I'm working with Kids v. Cancer, and it's a parent-run organization, and they asked me to ask you, right? Mm. And physicians are, I think, or were under the misimpression that it feels greedy and insensitive to say, oh, my re for my research, I want this tissue, and you know, your kid is dying, and may I have it? And so I think physicians felt frightened and scared to ask. And in fact, we tried to create an opportunity for physicians to ask in a way that was much more comfortable for them.
So that was my first project. So that, that sounds like something that ought to be incorporated into palliative care everywhere. Absolutely. And so what have you been able to do to sort of get that into the broader conversation? So this is actually a focus of ours for 2018, is to grow this program and to specifically just increase awareness to make sure that it is part of palliative care. In fact, a large portion of kids go back to their home hospitals to die, and the hospitals don't have formal palliative care programs. So for those families, we are just focusing on outreach and social media and educating oncologists and nurses even in small hospitals by going to meetings. Um, academic centers oftentimes are much better at this, um, but going forward we do want to ensure that this is a formal part of each palliative care program, and that will be part of our 2018 agenda. Great, yeah. But what I really want to talk about is a win we had in um, August of 2017 just a few months ago, when we got our second federal law um, passed amazing. by the United States Congress. You don't think small, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when your kid dies, you just feel like the world cannot continue to exist as it is, because as it is doesn't include my child, and so we have to change it. And I think that's why so many parents of really sick kids do incredible things. Well, congratulations to all your successes. I mean, it's pretty incredible, but um, I'm still blown away by the fact that you were able to just turn things around and just start working on this right away. You're, you passed, what was the first um, law that you got passed, and how did you even think that that was possible or go about doing that? Sure. So the tissue program started building, and I moved to Washington, D.C. to follow my husband, who had a job in the Obama administration. And the question was, you know, what can we do to create? a reason for companies to develop drugs for kids. So I'm a hardcore Democrat, but I was not interested in um, asking for increased funding. And the reason is that it's just incredibly hard to do. Everybody wants money. and Everyone wants cash. It. You end up spending a huge amount of time getting, and oftentimes you just don't get that much cash out of it. And then it's, it's one cash infusion, and then you're done. And my hope was, isn't there some way, you know, the pri private industry in the United States, the top 25 companies developing cancer drugs spend $150 billion on R&D. Like, can't we get a little teeny Go piece of this? Go where the money is. Yeah. So I just wanted, you know, 1%. That would be pretty good, right? That's $1.5 billion. Well, um, and, and the thinking, I mean, we had already tried the one-off cash thing, the Carolyn Price Walker yeah. Act, right? I mean, got passed 99 It got authorized. Authorized, but, but it wasn't never appropriated. Funded, right? so, Some little pieces were yeah. appropriated. So... I wrote the Creating Hope Act Pediatric Priority Review Voucher Program. And what this program does is it asks the question, how can we give companies a reason to develop drugs directly for kids with cancer, okay, when there may not be adult markets for these drugs? And so the way it works is if, let's say you have a little company, um, Tim, let's say you have an idea and you form a company and you develop a drug and you get it approved by the FDA, for medulloblastoma, maybe for Jacob's illness. I know you're not a medulloblastoma physician, but... Um, I'm happy to develop a drug for whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. If we have a good idea. So great, so great. So then the FDA gives you a voucher. And the voucher comes with rights to faster review of any drug, any future drug that would go before the FDA. Specifically, it would take a drug that would normally receive standard review, which is a 10-month period, um, and it would give that um, drug priority review, which is um, accelerated FDA review of six months. Now, you don't have any other drugs you're necessarily 
developing. Okay, so you may sell this voucher to Pfizer or to Sanofi. Um, and if you did that, Sanofi pays the market rate, which is now between 100 and 300 million dollars for that voucher. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. You can use it however you want. So, like, you're you just got your incentive, which is now you want to go develop another cancer drug. Of course, you want to anyways because you're a pediatric oncologist. But you know, you might be just a entrepreneur, a biotech entrepreneur who could develop all sorts of drugs. You may want to go do another pediatric um, cancer drug or it, or other pediatric rare disease drug. It's not only for pediatric cancer. Um, and so that was that was the goal there. And it's worked. Um, and so what we're seeing now is that companies are seriously considering... Um, How many vouchers have been sold? So well, we've had nine vouchers created. I think six have sold now. And and they sold between one hundred and three hundred million dollars. And here's like an interesting example. You know, I don't have um, complete information on this, but you know, when Novartis got their CAR T approved, they went for pediatric acute B cell. Yep, acute B cell leukemia. Leukemia. They did not go for an adult indication, which they could have done, right? Which is what Kite did. Kite went for. Uh, adult lymphoma. Adult lymphoma. So the thing is that adult lymphoma has a response rate of only about 30%. And pediatric acute B-cell leukemia. leukemia has 80%. Yep. Okay. So maybe that's part of the reason that Novartis did it. But, you know, there's circumstantial evidence that this voucher program was also part of the reason. So did they get a voucher? Yes, they yeah. got a voucher. Uh, okay. And Good for them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have enough things going on. They may use it for something else. In the, they may use company, it themselves. A lot of the vouchers haven't been sold, yeah. and that's fine too. You know, Novartis may keep their voucher, right. right? Or it may be sold, and not you know the um, the the sale price might not be announced. May not be a public sale. Right. How are you aware of other companies that are that this is motivating them that they're sort of working toward a pediatric indication first? Because of your program, so I um, I know of, for example, there's another um, Jim Olson, who's a pediatric um, neurologist, has started a company called Blaze Therapeutics, and he is using the existence of the voucher program to finance potentially finance this company. He is hoping that the um, drug that he's developing will receive a voucher designation, which means the FDA. Um, designates this drug as worthy of a voucher if the drug is approved, then he can take this designation and use it in all sorts of ways to finance drug development. And so absolutely, I've been working with them just to explain the program, and I I hope they'll get the designation that they're seeking. It's amazing to me that the uh, shortening a window of review from 10 months to 6 months, so a a four-month change could be worth $300 million to a company. So let me explain an example of where that happened. So Amgen and Sanofi were racing to market with PCSK9 um, heart disease drugs. And in Europe, Amgen got there first, okay? And there's a lot of benefit to getting there first because they can start, you know, um, developing. Exactly. and, And creating contractual relationships with the purchasers. Um, in the United States, Sanofi had purchased um, a voucher. Um, they exercised the voucher. And um, as a result, they got to the market in the United States first. Now, the voucher that they exercised, I think that was the voucher that they purchased from Unitux, from um, United Therapeutics, which developed Unitoxin. And that voucher was sold for $350 million. So it's kind of like getting a head start, yeah. being in front of the race. That, that's the goal. Yeah. 
presumably, so that law is still in place, and that's presumably still a motivator for companies. And um, do you see any changes to that in the future, or is there any ways that it should be or could be enhanced in any way? And what determines that price? Is that just sort of fair market value? It's a fair market value. It's a fair market value. The um, the law is, it's not a permanent law. It needs to be reauthorized, but it already has been reauthorized. There's a lot of strong congressional support for it, and we hope that it will be permanently reauthorized. Um, my, my recollection, when it was most recently reauthorized, there was a lot of pushback or, uh, that the FDA doesn't necessarily like it because they have to drop everything else and focus on this sort of thing. Have you gotten any kind of negative um, you know, feedback? I think there are. I, I think that um, FDA does take it on the chin because it's harder for them to do, and they've been really terrific. But you know what? They've done it. They, you know, in the case of the Sanofi Amgen case, they made sure that Sanofi's um, exercise of their voucher did, in fact, result in a faster review, um, and they've been very supportive. And um, also, you know. Um, you know, the United States Constitution provides that the executive branch, including the FDA, doesn't get to decide um, what laws are passed by Congress. That's a congressional decision. Right. That's one huge accomplishment. And then the next one this year, the, the, the Race uh, for Race Children for Act. Children Act. Yeah. Tell so um, the Creating Hope Act addresses the problem of how do you get companies to develop drugs expressly for kids, Tim, right? But you know, as you and I know, and you were, as you were talking to me this morning, you know, 95, 98% of all cancer drugs are not developed originally for children. They're developed for adults, right. right? And so my next question was, okay, there are 900 drugs in the adult cancer pipeline. Only a small handful are being, um, you know, developed for kids as well. Of those drugs are being tested in kids or are even have preclinical studies in pediatric indications. Like single digit percentages. Yeah, <laughs> like 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 very small single yeah. digit percentages. It's really a terrible problem. And so how can we take those nine hundred cancer drugs and ensure they're adequately studied in pediatric indications? And that is what I set out to address in the Race for Children Act, which Congress passed into federal law in August. And it provides that companies developing targeted cancer therapies now will be required to study them in pediatric indications when the FDA requires them to do so. And so specifically for those of you who are researchers and MDs, it modifies the Pediatric Research Equity Act, 21 U.S.C. 355C, by providing that the requirement to undertake pediatric study plans will now exist by molecular dar target when the molecular targets are substantially relevant to pediatric So in the past, that, that law said if it's the same disease, right? So if someone had an asthma drug versus uh, exactly. asthma children, whereas the, in, in, in the cancer world, they could say, well, we're developing this for prostate or breast or colon cancer, and so we don't have to do anything for pediatrics. Exactly. Whereas now... Because kids don't get breast cancer right, or prostate right. cancer or colon cancer. They get, you know, neuroblastoma and Ewing right. sarcoma and... But some of the drivers may be the same, so if there if there's a tar target exactly. that is indicative or, or thought to be driving one of these pediatric cancers that they're targeting in one of these adult cancers, then they're going to be required. And, and that makes sense because, you know, now... Now, all cancer drug development is by target. Yeah. Companies don't go start by saying, I'm going to develop a breast cancer drug. They say, I'm going to develop you know, a HER2 drug, right? And then they look around and they ask, what cancers have that indication in them? And there are adult cancers that, I'm that, sorry, that have that target in them. Yep. There are adult cancers with that target, but there may be pediatric cancers too. And so 
under the Race for Children Act now, their PREA obligations will exist for cancer so that they have an obligation to study those drugs. And the way it will actually work is that when companies get to the end of their adult phase two trials, they'll be required to submit to the FDA um, a pediatric study plan that describes the pediatric indications that are substantially relevant to the target of the drug they're developing and what their plans are for studying those preclinical approximately through phase two. Um, so will they have to submit that before they go on to a phase three study of their adult indication or well, what will be the consequence for not submitting that? So I, I believe they can, they could technically still continue their phase three, but you know, these are unapproved drugs and whether these drugs are approved or not is purely a function of the analysis of the FDA medical officers. And so I don't think it would be wise wise for, yeah, for companies to start. um, So even if, so sometimes drugs are approved based on phase two data. So even if that's all they, for a rare indication, even a rare adult cancer. So so if they finish the phase two and they want to go to the FDA to get approval, they're going to have to submit this. They have to have the pediatric study plan. Now, would the the, P, the FDA um, would the FDA approve it without the pediatric study plan? I don't know if they may have the authority not to, but they could. They certainly have the informal opportunity to ask yeah. the company for this information. And then, what's going to hold the company's feet to the fire to actually carry out the said yeah. plan? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And in fact, only half of all PREA studies are completed. So it's not a perfect program, and Part of it, that's my job, and that's the job of all the advocates listening today, is we need to track the company's performance on their study plans, and we need to call them out, you know, and we need to make it hard for them not to comply. The pediatric study plans do have um, uh, specific time time deadlines for when each step of the study plan should be completed, when phase one should be completed, when first in human should occur. And companies can go back to the FDA and ask for extensions, but um, you know there is this requirement. Now, under the Pediatric Research Equity Act, a company not in compliance will have what's called a non-compliance letter posted on the FDA site so that everybody knows. Um, so far, there is no implication for having a non-compliance letter. So that's public shaming. It's public shaming, and we need to do better. We, we need to figure out what else we can do to motivate companies to, to complete these studies. And other advocates are really working hard on that question, and I hope we'll get some work on that. But in the meantime, you know, that that's going to be one of the important jobs of advocates. So the public shaming will be public knowledge. Will it be public knowledge of which companies have been told you need to have a pediatric plan? Yes. Or, or those that have been filed? That, that'll be knowledge. So knowable. the, um, yes, so the, the, the existence of a plan will be public information. Great. What do you hope that the, the contents will not be? Right. That makes sense. I mean, that's going to be yeah. confidential yeah. and proprietary, but it'll presumably have to get approval, approved of, in some yes. some way by the FDA. By right? the FDA, absolutely. Yeah. So, what do you hope that or that the advocacy community can do to help you in this endeavor? What do you have things in place? Do you want to have a you know? Are you calling for volunteers to do anything? With regards to uh, watchdogging this, I guess. So we're we're building up that response, Tim, and we we haven't um, we haven't launched that piece of it yet. But yes, I mean, advocates that are interested in being part of the watchdog effort, you know, 
please contact me at nancygoodman at kidsvcancer.org. You may be listening to this podcast today on November 20th, um, 2017. But if you're listening to it in 2018 or 19 or 20, still contact us because we, we need your help. And it's really, it's really important and we need to um, protect our kids. And also we need to protect pediatric cancer researchers who need access to these drugs. Yeah. We appreciate all your efforts in that because we want to keep keep it going, being able to make progress. Because pediatric cancer is where a lot of progress has been made. We've proven that yeah. can happen. Research can cure cancer. We just need to keep going with it. Uh, what are the next steps or what do you see for the future or the vision of, are you done getting laws passed? Is there going to be more laws coming? What What's the... Uh, well, this is, you, you know, we... we um We've been sprinting for four years to get the Race for Children Act passed, and now we're in a rebuilding stage. So that is the question we're asking is, you know, what are the important, so first of all, what are the important legislative initiatives that we need to think about? It's not a coincidence that Creating Hope Act was passed in 2012, and Race for Children Act was passed in 2017 with a five-year gap because the next opportunity to get a big piece of legislation passed is going to be in five years in 2022. And we have about a year to identify what our big priority is going to be. Um, Why is that? What's that magic about So because every five years, an FDA reauthorization bill is passed in Congress. And the after, what an FDA reauthorization bill is, is it's, it's actually a contract between the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry, where the pharmaceutical industry agrees to pay the FDA extra fees to process their drug applications. And the FDA um, promises the pharmaceutical industry that they will um, provide extra services, including maybe they will produce, they will um, review the applications on time or maybe even faster. They will provide extra meetings maybe, to industry, maybe they'll write extra guidances, maybe they'll reorganize themselves to establish a cancer center of excellence that would be easier for industry to use as they approach the FDA. And then this agreement between the FDA and industry is memorialized by Congress, they pass it into law, and that's how it becomes binding. And these agreements expire every five years. So for example, it sets the um, application fee. I the old agreement had an application fee of $2.8 million, maybe. I don't know what the new application fee is, but that's really the core of the program. And then... That money goes from the drug company to the FDA? Yes, from the... So the FDA is not just funded by uh, the federal government's budget. Well, well, in fact, the... um, So the FDA has different sections, right? But the Center for... um, CEDAR, the Center for Drug and Evaluation Research, which is the section of the FDA that evaluates drugs is funded more than 75% by these user fees. Wow, okay. So it's really critical for the FDA. And then what the FDA gets to do is hire many more medical officers so that they can do a serious and robust review in a timely fashion with you know current technology and send their medical officers to medical meetings to and training programs to ensure that the medical officers you know keep abreast of scientific advances. One of the things I never knew until I was on one of these FDA committees is many of those officers actually have research programs of their own and research laboratories of their own on the White Oak, White Oak campus usually and, you know, core facilities and budgets and they're in the field that they're also regulating so that they keep, keep themselves up to date. And you would want that to yeah, be the case. Absolutely. You don't want them to be an ivory tower where they don't really know what's happening. Right. You would want them to go to as many meetings as possible or do research if they can and be as engaged as possible in the community. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's kind of amazing operations that they have going on. Right, and so every time these agreements are passed, they're called FDA reauthorizations, we, you know, any other FDA-related bill um, is considered and attached to that. And so we got the Creating Hope Act attached in 2017. We got Race for Children Act attached. I'm sorry, Race for Children 2017, Creating Hope Act 2012. And it's hard to get a bill passed through Congress. You know, Congress doesn't have a lot of time. But if there's a major piece of legislation moving, like we know the FDA reauthorization in 2022 has to pass, right? Because 75% of FDA's budget, or maybe more, depends on it. That's when our next opportunity for a really big piece of legislation is Do you have in. ideas about what that might be, or are you looking for ideas? I'm looking for some. Do you have any ideas I for me? I don't, but if, uh, I mean, I could maybe think about it if, 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 yeah, if I'm not, absolutely. not put on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That was very unfair. <laughs> but if, uh, I'm just wondering if our listeners had ideas, should they contact you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. And how much of a lead time do you need before that 2022 to really be work, have your ideas crystallized and, you know, Chosen. You know, we, we spend all five, you know, we are now thinking, we're spending this year thinking about what our next idea is going to so be. You really need it soon and so that you can spend that much time writing it. And it takes it, it takes four years to, um, you know, sort of the first piece is you hire academics to write articles around the policy so you understand all the implications of the policy you're considering changing and there are always so many permutations for how you could develop this policy, and you need to really understand how each permutation would affect both the the outcome from a policy perspective, you know, who gains, who loses, what the political implications are, what the cost implications are, what the scientific opportunities are. So it takes, you know, it takes about a year of, of writing these papers to get up to speed, and then it takes, you know, six months or more to write the first draft, right? because it's just hard to write How a big a team do you have to work on all these things? Well, it's concentric circles. You know, we have at Kids v. Cancer, we only, there are only um, four of us on the payroll, and then there are another do dozen of us who are consultants. And then we have about half a dozen advisors who are pro bono, but, you know, who are... Um, who charge sort of between $1,000 an hour to $40,000 a month. So these folks do great. We have, and you know, I've, I've been talking really in terms of kids v. cancer getting these bills passed, but I want to make clear that, you know, we don't get them passed, the entire pediatric cancer community does. And it's not just us working on them. You know, um, True 365 and Joe Baber um, have done an incredible job of sweeping social media on Twitter, um, Mike Gillette makes incredibly beautiful documentaries of kids explaining why these bills are important. These documentaries are just so impactful. Um, CAC2 has done a great job, and the Alliance for Childhood Cancer, they do incredibly robust grassroots programs to get hundreds of advocates lobbying on Capitol Hill. We have, you know, Jonathan Agin writing incredible op-eds, and Donna Ludwinski is, you know, working with us to put together info charts to explain this information with, you know, very complicated scientific ideas in ways that people can really understand. Lori Alaska, I mean, it's, it's a huge program. We have hundreds of people working pro bono. We have um, academics who spend a lot of time explaining the issues to us and FDA officials are very, very involved in making sure that we understand the implications of the changes that we're considering and that they comply, they, they fit in well with FDA procedures and approaches. 
the congressional staffers are really the unsung heroes. They're these incredible young men and women in their 20s and early 30s. Like they're just so dang young. And <laughs> they get younger and younger. They get year. younger <laughs> and younger. They don't necessarily um, know anything about pediatric cancer when they start. And they spend so much time and so much effort getting, you know, sharpening those bills, getting the right language in, you know, working with each other to get, you know, to get those bills in through committee and onto the floor. I mean, they do an unbelievable job. And of course, the members of Congress are great, but really the, the kids are just unbelievable. Well, that's fantastic. It really speaks volumes about how teamwork can make a difference. Uh, one person can make a difference, but uh, it requires teamwork and and lots of different angles. And congratulations on all your success. The final question, you've certainly created hope and are hopefully we're racing toward cures so who's comes up with those cutesy titles for your laws <laughs> <laughs> so not me tim i'm a nerd um and i know what i can do well and what i can't do well and in both cases so ellie dahoney came up with creating hope act she was um, legislative director for senator sherrod brown and she started me off on creating hope act and she was amazing and Rita Habib, who was the incredible whoopersnapper staffer for Senator Michael Bennett, ours was the first bill she worked on um, after being promoted to legislative associate, and she just rocked it, and she came up with that title. And, you know, I want you to know, if we have another bill, I'm not naming that one either. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, it's the young people that are coming through for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being here. It's been a great conversation. Hopefully, this will help others see the power of advocacy and maybe uh, spur people that haven't been advocates to become advocates and, and make a difference like you have. So, thank you thank so you. much, Tim. And, and thank you to everyone listening. I appreciate it. And I'm so grateful for any ideas you have. Yeah, as Nancy mentioned, please, uh, you know, you, no matter when you're listening to this in the future, email us if you have a question for her. I can send it on to her or you can contact her directly. Our email is twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donald Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications. And thanks to Scott Kennedy and John Lennon, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.